brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Happy days are here again, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and I have always wondered how a person can be pulled from their car on a country road, taken aboard a silver spacecraft, and poked at by mysterious greys, only to come back with the message that we need to take better care of the planet. I mean, we do need to take better care of the planet, but if a tiger at the zoo told me that, I might have other things on my mind. Still, this is a persistent theme of alien abductions, telepathic Bigfoot encounters, spirit contact, time slips, near-death experience, Marian apparitions, intense psychedelic journeying, and all sorts of stuff under the high strangeness umbrella. So much of it contains the stewardship theme that I sometimes wonder if these entities and manifestations aren't produced by Gaia herself. And that is one of many interesting ideas that does come up in Greening the Paranormal, exploring the ecology of the extraordinary experience, a fascinating book of essays and articles from bright minds that are not afraid to fold the weirdest of weird things into an ecological framework that was edited and compiled by the great Dr. Jack Hunter. Jack was here once before on the release of his previous book, Engaging the Anomalous, Collected Essays on Anthropology, the Paranormal, Mediumship, and the Extraordinary Experience where we talked largely about his doctoral research with the University of Bristol, studying and participating in sessions with spirit mediums, the contact experiences with a spirit named Charlie, and the work of the great late Charles Fort. Since we last spoke, on top of Greening the Paranormal, Dr. Hunter has also released Spirits, Gods, and Magic, an introduction to the anthropology of the supernatural, which looks at the history of evolving ideas on such strangeness, and recontextualizes this relationship with the spirit world as a good anthropologist would. They certainly make good topics of conversation, so let's do the damn thing. The paranormal PhD, the certifiable Dudist priest and anthropologist of the anomalous, Dr. Jack Hunter, welcome back to THC. Thank you, thanks for having me. You got it, man. So happy to do this again. Had a blast last time, and Funny enough, I actually just saw in your bio about you being an ordained Judas priest. And unless that's a typo, <laughs> is that something that came out of the Church of the Big Lebowski? It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm an ordained Judas priest. So I'm licensed to do weddings in some states in America. Wow. <laughs> but probably not 
to do them here in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're certainly taking weddings seriously these days as a as a serious spiritual <laughs> tradition, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome, man. Nice to have that on your resume, if you ask me. But I really liked both of these new books that you put out. Green the Paranormal in particular has a lot of fun Fordian stories and fresh ideas for approaching the paranormal and something that bumps up against the climate change topic can sometimes be a trigger for some of the listeners out there. Mm. But putting all that aside, it's obvious that a lot of people treat the earth like a rented hotel room. Living in cities tends to erode the respect we have for the natural world. And the biggest multinational corporations fill the land, sea, and air with toxins and steamroll as much as they can, and they don't really face any social consequence. And at least some of that might relate to paranormal experience and the frequency of those experiences, right? It might well do, yeah. I mean, part of the overall theme of the book is that engagement with the natural world, so participation in ecology... So, you know, whether that's going outside into your garden or going trekking in the wilderness or, you know, some people will participate in ecology through, you know, scuba diving or whatever, surfing and things like that. But through different kinds of engagement with the living natural world, we open ourselves up to extraordinary experiences. One of the things that I noticed while I was doing my research for this book project was that actually there seemed to be a bit of a almost like a feedback loop effect. So that when people participate in ecological systems, they have these extraordinary experiences. And then, as you said in your introduction, when they come back from those experiences, they have a renewed kind of sense of connection to the natural world and an increased desire to kind of do stuff to help it. So there's an interesting, you know, like a feedback loop going on there where, you know, the more we engage with the world, the more we have extraordinary experiences. And the more we have extraordinary experiences, the more we want to engage with the world and boost biodiversity and that kind of thing. So that's one of the main threads that runs throughout that whole book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's a good one. Yeah. You know, people say you don't know what you have till it's gone. And I would hate to see that happen when it comes to some of the amazing natural landscapes we have, because these aren't things you can just rebuild like a mall that collapses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like They don't come back quickly, if at all. Another theme that runs through the book is to do with biodiversity and, you know, animism and the idea that, you know, animals and plants and other kinds of living entities also have, you know, a spiritual or a consciousness side to them. So I've been playing with this idea of biodiversity also being equivalent to psychodiversity. So, you know, the more different species of plants and animals that we have, the more psychodiverse our world is. And I think, you know, at the moment, we're living in the sixth mass extinction. You know, this is a major event. And the most unusual thing about this particular mass extinction compared to others is that it is predominantly, you know, anthropogenic. It's being produced by human beings. So we're in a, an extraordinary position now where, unfortunately, you know, over the last hundred years or so, we've lost almost like, I can't remember what the exact figure, but it's shockingly high, almost like 50% of species over the last hundred years of human activity and just think about that in terms of psychodiversity you know we're also losing as well as the rich genetic and biological data that's contained within all these species we're also losing all of those different forms of consciousness different forms of cognition and different forms of you know experiencing the world mm. so really you know the biodiversity crisis is also 
a crisis of minds. You know, we're losing different forms of consciousness and intelligence, which, you know, when you put it in those terms, it's really shocking and scary. <laughs> it is. And yes, that is kind of the crux of the animist argument that these are all forms of consciousness, types of minds, as you might say. Mm -hmm. And that's just really a fascinating way to look at it because when you get into the paranormal and you start to look at, well, who's studying this stuff? You obviously come across psi research pretty quickly, and that's important. I think we are learning some things from the parapsychology realm, but that's kind of a limited view of consciousness. It's not just about human beings. Consciousness seems to permeate through basically all living things, and of course, that is kind of the crux of where you come in, is as an animist, that's the perspective you're bringing to the table, and I think it's a good one. Yeah. And the way I'm thinking now is, you know, what would it be like to approach the world from an animist perspective, you know, in terms of the way that we behave and interact with the world? Because we know that our Western society is, as you said, again, in the introduction, pumping all of these chemicals into the atmosphere and doing all sorts of terrible things. We need a kind of a change of narrative. And I think animism is one of the ways that we might be able to change the narrative. But in order to do that, we need to dig into the kind of animistic traditions that are sort of lying hidden within our within our own society and culture. And that's where the paranormal comes into it. Because, you know, we have this strong current of the paranormal in our society, although it's viewed as kind of taboo and people don't like to talk about it and that kind of stuff. But people have the experiences and the beliefs are there. And essentially, when you look at the paranormal and you take it you know, in its broadest sense, You've got things like mind-to-mind -mind communication and the existence of spirits and different kinds of entities. And when you think a bit about it like that, really what you're dealing with, again, is animism. <laughs> so I think the paranormal, in a way, is, our, is a part of or a, maybe a remnant of or a kind of a sleeping form of our earlier kind of animist thinking. So by engaging with you know, the paranormal community, the people who are interested in the paranormal, and making them realize that what they're actually interested in is a cosmos that's alive with lots of different forms of intelligence, then maybe those people too can become engaged in trying to, you know, do something about this biodiversity crisis that we're going through. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I really do think there's a parallel between paranormal experiences and their frequency and their potency and just wild animals. Like both have been driven out by our industrialization and if we didn't have zoos or even photographs like how many people wouldn't believe that jaguars are real like because you wouldn't see one in the middle of new york city just like bigfoot or a lot of these experiences i think the cities are too noisy for these kind of things a lot of paranormal experiences are somewhat subtle or they require like maybe a stillness or a quietness or a focus to even get into that zone and I think it is as simple as saying, look at things we know exist and how off the radar they are from industrialization. And why couldn't paranormal experience be the same, especially if it is so tied to the natural world? Yeah, I, I think there's a real connection between, like you say, wildness and the paranormal. You know, the paranormal is something that is uncontrollable. We can't predict when it's going to happen. And that's part of the problem that parapsychology has got with it, because it's one of those phenomena that seems to occur 
in really intense, strange social situations that you can't get into the lab. So the paranormal seems to be fundamentally about wildness. So it's not surprising then, you know, that when people go out into the wilderness, they have encounters with, you know, flying saucers in the woods and, you know, encounters with Bigfoot and that kind of thing, because they're engaging with the wilderness. One way I've been thinking about this recently, you know how, I think we may have talked about permaculture a little bit. Yeah. But in permaculture, they have this way of kind of like mapping out around your house, like a sector analysis or a zone analysis. And they talk about having zone zero is like yourself, and then zone one is your house, and it goes all the way out to zone five. And zone five is the wilderness. And they talk about the need for having wilderness corridors that come all the way up to zone zero, right into the south, because it's by going out into the wilderness, that's where we learn about, you know, how nature works. And then we can bring that back into the home and incorporate it into our gardens. I think there's an interesting connection there between this idea of the wilderness on the edge of the garden where you go for inspiration and where the wild things live. And then also, you know, like the idea of there being fairies at the bottom of the garden and things like that. You know, you tell the, the children to go and look for the fairies at the bottom of the garden. They run down there and it's down at those bottom places where the garden merges from being a tame place into being a wilderness place. And that's where paranormal experiences seem to happen. And we think about, again, the, um, uh, this is a weird example, but, you know, the Kelly Hopkinsville goblin encounter. And the goblins are all out on the edge of the garden and they're kind of coming in and out of the shadows. And then they're coming up to the house. It's like the wilderness, you know, on the edge coming up through wilderness corridors right up to zone zero. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there's a connection there between the wilderness and extraordinary experiences. I don't know exactly what the mechanism is, <laughs> but it seems to be there. I agree. Bigfoot encounters are when people are camping, and typically a lot of UFO encounters are too. Rendlesham Forest, a lot of these missing time getting put back in the wrong place things. It's when you're out on a country road in isolation. Isolation is a huge factor in this stuff. But I guess the part that's hard to wrap your head around is from an animist perspective, I tend to think of a consciousness being pegged to a thing like a human or even plant consciousness. But what do we peg some of these paranormal consciousnesses to? Are they completely detached? Do they not have a physical uh, component? No, well, I mean, there's lots of different ways that we could think about it. And I think, you know, when people like the Romans and the ancient Greeks would talk about the noumen loci, or, you know, the spirit of place, you know, perhaps you can have entities or something that are manifestations, not of an individual object, but maybe of a whole landscape or, you know, a collective kind of manifestation. It's not that far off thinking, you know, the kind of thinking that some people have about the Gaia hypothesis. You know, that the whole of the world is a single living organism and that that might have some kind of a super consciousness that contains all of the mini consciousnesses that are within it. And I think you could, you know, like a fractal of consciousness in a way, you can zoom that in and out and, you know, whole landscapes could become sentient. And then you could zoom in and then there's individual organisms within that that are also sentient. So perhaps it's something to do with that. You know, they don't necessarily have to be linked to a particular plant or a particular rock or tree, but maybe the combination of all of those things. <laughs> Who knows? 
it's interesting there's a movement to recognize the personhood of whole ecosystems at the moment like the Wahanganui River in New Zealand was recognized as a you know having the rights of personhood a couple of years ago and the river Ganges was recognized as having the rights of personhood you know so that we treat them as persons rather than as resources to be plundered and you know maybe they're tapping into a similar kind of sentiment that you know whole ecosystems can also have a character or a personhood and if we think about them and engage with them on those terms then we behave very differently inside them yeah yeah i mean hey we have granted personhood to corporations you think we could do it for a river or a mountain too i mean that's kind of a little more important if we're going to just start throwing around personhood labels let's put it on some of these things instead of pfizer yeah exactly <laughs> so i'm with you there and maybe i'm just too obsessed with categorization or breaking things down or labels charles fort would have a field day with me for that but i think about this idea of place spirits or maybe a whole forest and it's all these consciousnesses coming together in a sort of soup mm. and then it's like well the value to me of maybe making contact with a disembodied consciousness is to get a feel for its personality or its thoughts or its ideas. And then that gets really hard in, in that kind of consciousness soup setting. If we're talking about a landscape of all these kinds of different minds mm. working together and maybe tapping into that and having a, a mind to mind communication, it's like, well, how do we know whose thoughts are what? Is that the grass talking to me or is that the redwood tree? Is that the dandelion? Maybe that's not important, but that's where my, my mind goes, and it gets pretty confusing. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It reminds me of my mediumship research and the way that the developing mediums, the way that the spirits manifested through them over a period of time, you know, weeks or months. And it was the circle leader who would kind of focus in on little twitches or little movements and things and identify those as belonging to a particular spirit. So, you know, for example, in one seance, the medium's hand might be twitching. So the circle leader will see that twitching hand and start to interact with it and then eventually build up a dialogue with it. So it's almost so it's a similar kind of thing within this, yeah, like mind soup that you're calling it. You know, you can focus in on elements within that and engage in a smaller dialogue in a way, you know, by picking out on like wow. one particular rock within the landscape and holding it and engaging in interaction or. You know, with your cat at home, picking up the cat, extracting it from the landscape and holding it in your arms and engaging with it. So I think, it, you know, we can narrow our focus down into individuals and then we can broaden our focus out to the whole consciousness of landscapes and then to the whole planet and outwards further, I reckon, even onto a cosmic scale. Because we're talking about panpsychism and that kind of stuff and consciousness being inherent in matter then it's not just on our level you know it goes all the way up to the cosmic scale and right down to the macro you know micro scale as well yeah it's a matter of tuning in in a way or focusing our attention onto different levels of that thing i agree and i think that's like what astrology is is uh the consciousness or the energies of various planets and they seem to have an effect on the earth it's like yeah we can scale that up we have a category for looking at consciousness 
and planets and and also people, but the things in between we aren't so good at and maybe we need to get better. And at one point, you do ask the question as it pertains to mediumship, what is it really? Is it the survival of consciousness after death or is it super psi? And you make the point that we don't even really know after 150 years of research well, what are your thoughts on the mechanism behind mediumship and how you think we could really solve that puzzle, given that we haven't solved it yet? Yeah. Where does that research need to go? What are they not looking at? How can we push through to a, a legitimate answer? I think the usual thing with these kind of controversies, I guess, like, is that the truth is usually somewhere in between. So I don't actually think that there's anything... Like, there's no reason why you can't have spirits and super psi, you know, at the same time. <laughs> They're not mutually exclusive phenomena, you know, not theoretically anyway. Yeah. I reckon that somewhere along the line, psi is going to have to be, or whatever psi is, must be the mechanism by which spirits do what spirits do as well. Psychokinesis and ESP and, you know, telepathy and those kind of things must be the mechanisms that spirits use to communicate with each other in the ether or wherever they are <laughs> and also you know in poltergeist cases and stuff psychokinesis would be the mechanism by which a non-physical entity can manipulate physical matter so they're not mutually exclusive so in order to make strides forward we're going to have to start thinking more same old things <laughs> start thinking a little bit more holistically about these things and not trying to prove one way or the other, but actually trying to see how these different things relate to each other. And I think that might be one way of taking this you know, further forwards. I don't know if it'll get to the finished answer, but... <laughs> well, that's a good point. Maybe it's not either or, but maybe super psi development is required to make contact with after-death consciousness. You know, it really yeah. could be kind of a weird form of both. And that does just get right back to the whole issue of if this is how complex our minds are and how little we understand of our minds, good luck digesting that for plants, minerals, crystals, animals, yeah. because it's just going to be, uh, uh, it just shows you how much work we have to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I just think it's interesting though, how like, slowly mainstream science starts to cotton onto these things as well. You know, like with all the recent research on plant consciousness and plant neurobiology and things on like, um, you know, the intelligence of octopuses and squids and things like that. Slowly, piece by piece, we're seeing that things that we'd reserved for humans, like, you know, intelligence and memory and learning and even things like culture, you know, we're finding that, you know, certain crows and certain kinds of fish even have culture. It's pretty amazing. It's just a matter of, like I was saying before, focusing in and engaging and spending time with these things to realize actually how complex every single component of this complex system is. It's nuts. <laughs> it is. And let's get into plant intelligence a little bit, because that's something that I think people are hearing more about, but maybe not the details. To quote the intro section you have where you mention this, you say in their book, Brilliant Green, plant intelligence researchers Mancuso and Viola call for a radical shift in the way we think about plants. They explain 
A compelling body of research shows that higher-order plants really are intelligent, able to receive signals from their environment, process the information, and devise solutions adaptive to their own survival. What's more, they manifest a kind of swarm intelligence that enables them to behave not as an individual, but as a multitude. Peter Wallenbin's book, The Hidden Life of Trees, for example, collects together evidence suggesting that trees are in fact social beings who live in communities. They look after their young and elderly by sharing their nutrients amongst themselves. Even the stumps of long-fallen trees continue to be supported with nutrients by the rest of the community, and they communicate with one another through complex chemical signaling and microhazinal networks, the fungal networks. Can you expand on some of this and elaborate on your favorite examples of plant and tree intelligence for people who just don't consider it a big deal? Yeah, I think some of the most interesting recent research has been the work of Monica Gagliano. Um, she's a researcher in Australia, and she's been doing really fascinating research on things like plant memory and plant learning. You know, so if plants are able to learn, then it implies that they have memory. And, you know, our standard models of memory imply that you need to have a brain to do that. But plants don't have <laughs> brains, you know, not in the same way that we do anyway. So I think the new interesting research on plant intelligence is busting open a lot of things that we'd held as necessary for consciousness or for intelligence and showing that, you know, there are other ways that intelligence has been able to manifest in the world. And as you know, some people might think it's really silly to expand or to extend it, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised if further down the line, I don't know how long it'll take, like a hundred years, two hundred years, but you know, someone eventually will discover a way to interact with the rocks. <laughs> you know what I mean? To on whatever level of consciousness they're on. So, you know, it's taken us this long to recognize the intelligence of plants through this process of engagement. And then eventually one day we might even do it with rocks and other forms of you know, matter that don't have a neurobiological system, but may have consciousness in some way. It's amazing. <laughs> it has the potential. For sure. And Monica Gagliano, she's been on Rune Soup, a really amazing episode. Apparently her experiments were inspired by messages she got from plant spirits kind of in a shamanistic way. I mean, that's pretty interesting. It's like they were calling her to do some some experiments. That's one of the most refreshing and interesting things about her book. Thus Spoke the Plant, I think it's called, yeah. And she would go on these sort of like dieta retreats and would just like eat the roots of trees or the bark of trees and things and spend time like out in the wilderness with the tree. And through these rituals, I suppose you could think of them also almost like ritual ordeals. She encountered, you know, the intelligence of the trees in, you know, communicating with them. In a lot of cases, it was from her experiences that she came up with these ideas for, you know, novel experiments that she could do in the lab. This is a fascinating, like, in a way, almost like a scientific validation of the intelligence of plants coming about through interaction with plants on a psychic level, which is amazing. <laughs> For sure. It's like a collaboration of sorts, which is pretty strange. And, which might uh, be... Oh, sorry, what were we saying? I was just going to say, you know, collaboration with the plants might be the way, the way forward. Yeah, exactly. Ask Mimosa how to do an experiment that 
illustrates its intelligence because apparently it has some ideas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I love a good paranormal story that doesn't fit into the conventional molds of spirits, Bigfoot, or aliens. And this one is just a great story from the foreword of Greening the Paranormal. And it's got a kind of a nature skin on it. But this is a story of Paul Devereaux, who is someone I wasn't too familiar with until this book, but he seems to be a pretty popular author on some of these subjects. But he tells a pretty wild story in that intro about him and his wife out doing field research for a book project where they were just trying to geographically map some of these older accounts of fairy paths from folklore accounts in Dublin. And he says they came to a fork in the road and where the road forked was a patch of grass. And he says, quote, suddenly standing on the grass, there was a figure between two and three feet tall. It was anthropomorphic and fully three-dimensional. The figure was comprised of a jumble of very dark green tones, as if comprised of a tight, dense tangle of foliage. It didn't seem to quite have a face, just a head with deep-set eyes peering out of the green tangle. As we crawled past it in our car, the figure started to turn its head in our direction and then vanished. My wife called out, oh shit, and we looked at each other and you saw that, he asked rhetorically. The whole episode lasted for about a minute and a half, he says, but it was subsequently an actual, if transient, objective observation seen by two people. And that's really interesting because, yeah, he has another witness right there that can say, you saw that thing too. And just crazy. I guess it sounds like some sort of elemental or fairy creature of some type. Or the green man or something like that. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it opens up, you know, thinking about folklore and that kind of thing. And, you know, how encoded within the folklore, like the folklore of the green man, are these ideas of nature connection, of being like a presence in nature that we can reconnect with and things like that. So it's just really interesting. And also the overlaps, obviously, with the fairy tradition. You know, they were in Ireland and fairies are associated, like I was saying before, with these wilderness places. So, you know, you're out in the middle of nowhere down a country lane and you have an encounter with a fairy that seems to be an embodiment of nature. It's the perfect story to encapsulate this idea of greening the paranormal. That's true. That's true. And speaking of Paul Devereaux, he seems to be known for his work on orbs or UFO sightings, which he calls Earth Lights. One of the chapters in this book is by Simon Wilson, and he analyzes Paul's Earthlight's idea and the suggestion Paul makes that these are paranormal experiences that are co-created when imaginal consciousness interacts with the landscape. Can you elaborate on what he's saying there? Because it is a really unique take on these orb or UFO sightings that people have. Yeah, I mean, there's a few different ways that Paul Devereaux has explored, you know, the way that we might be able to interact with the landscape. So, you know, one of the ideas is that there can be certain areas in the landscape that are, you know, like more radioactive or that have higher levels of background radiation. So that when we go to those places, you know, on whatever level, it interacts with our neurochemistry and induces hallucinations and things. That's not to say that the hallucinations are necessarily, you know, not real. It might be just one mechanism of interacting with stuff. And then there's other ideas about things like magnetism and that kind of stuff that can interact with our consciousness. 
And then there are other ideas, you know, about ley lines and subtle energies. So one of the ideas is that, you know, when we're going out into the landscape, we can engage with these subtle energies. And as they interact with our imagination, we have visions of entities. And it's a cool idea. I I quite like it. (laughs) Yeah. He writes about something called tectonic strain and that it's like, uh, you know, sometimes in paranormal experiences, they're triggered by people having really intense migraines or something. And you could almost say this is a parallel to like an earth migraine, a tectonic strain that opens up some form of consciousness. And to quote Simon Wilson's chapter on this, he goes on to say, the next step Devereaux takes is to argue that ancient humans knew of these effects and built structures to produce and enhance the experience. Stone circles, that is, are portals to the soul world. Devereaux presents survey evidence to suggest that not ley lines, but fault lines were the defining element in the placing of Neolithic monuments in the landscape. Stone circles were erected in the vicinity of geological faulting or similar features and served somehow to accumulate and strengthen the energy produced by tectonic strain. The builders were able to predict and coordinate the movements when the god energy would be released. In this way, the gods did appear on Earth, says Devereaux. And that is really, really interesting. I I don't know that I've ever heard anybody equate the types of monuments that seem spiritual, these stone circles and stuff. I've never heard anyone equate them to fault lines rather than ley lines. Maybe there's so many lines that, you know, you can always find one in proximity of these things, perhaps. But that is a really fascinating new idea. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily saying that every stone circle is built on a fault line, but certainly some are. And there's a really interesting associations between fault lines and different kinds of, you know, UFO experiences and things. So it makes sense. If these things are there and they really are associated with these subtle earth energies, then people thousands of years ago probably would have had more chance of experiencing them than we do. You know, because of all our light pollution and that kind of stuff, we've ruined it for ourselves, really. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe they were more aware of these things and they did incorporate them into their belief systems and also into their sort of ritual infrastructure. It, I think it, it makes sense. But it's obviously a quite controversial idea as well. <laughs> <laughs> Which I like around here. And Another author in Green the Paranormal, Nancy Wissers, I think is how you pronounce her name. She wrote about the Lenape Indian tribe's idea of recruitment by the earth. And that gets into these things we're talking about. But can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, there's a nice thread that runs through the book to do with indigenous American ways of thinking about the natural world, but also, you know, the spiritual world that's a part of that. In Nancy's chapter, she talks about how she met these Lenape people who seem to have been brought up in a completely different way of looking at the world. And they would talk about, you know, again, like many animistic people, like the person, personhood of um, trees and animals and things like that. There's another great chapter taking an indigenous American perspective by Lance Foster in the book, where he talks about a Native American chief called Plenty Coup. And he's trying to cross this river and they have this interaction with the kind of what they take to be like the spirit of the river, this kind of whirlpool that captures them. And there's a a great message in that story because Plenty Coup 
they interact with this thing, they give it an offering when they finally manage to escape from it. And then instead of, you know, coming to try and hunt it or kill it, or in the modern example, maybe like bring it back into the lab for analysis, they decide to leave it alone. You know, so the message is that there needs to be a place in the wilderness for these really wild things to exist, you know, without us interfering with them. You know, if we stumble across them, we don't want to disrupt them again. We want to leave them in their place. You know, they could be, you know, like the rarest living things in the world, you know, super rare creatures <laughs> or forms of consciousness out there. Yeah, it's like the old uh, King Kong motif, you know, bringing <laughs> that thing back from uh, its native land. And I really love that Plenty Coup story. It's very strange. He and his war party are preparing to cross the Mississippi River they note that the water seemed weird just right off the bat. They looked in like something's happening here. And they dropped an offering of buffalo fat in and it's supposed to float, but it sank. So they're also like that strange too. And then they're trying to cross on horseback and one guy gets grabbed and it, he gets kind of lifted out of the water and he's... I think still on his horse and he's hovering above the water and finally they, well, I guess Plenty Coup starts kicking the empty space underneath the guy and hits something invisible that he describes as feeling like greasy feathers. And then the guy and his horse are released and they go on about their journey. And it has just got so many weird little details to it. And, I wonder if other people in the Missouri River have had similar experiences. Yeah, it's amazing. And I just love the idea that there are these special places, little hidden pockets where these forms of intelligence have taken residence. And every now and again, you know, we happen to stumble across them. <laughs> and it's up to us then what we do with that. Do we pursue it or leave it to its own devices? <laughs> and I think, you know, leave it to its own devices is the best <laughs> option. Fair. And I mean, in that example, someone could say, well, what is the value of keeping that thing there if it only is going to prey upon people, perhaps? Is there a flip side to, to that? I mean, are we just supposed to stay out of the river? If we acknowledge that there is this something there in this Missouri River, let's say, then what, what do you think is the best approach? I mean, just leave it alone, sure, but how do we study it? Do you think we can communicate with it? Do you think we can have some experiences with it where it isn't quite so ornery? Yeah, I'm sure there are ways of placating these spirits. I mean, you know, shamanistic traditions are all about that, you know, trying to understand how you can engage in a respectful dialogue with these entities. I think they did the right thing by leaving it alone. But, you know, maybe, you know, a shaman or a medicine man could come back later and give it an offering and try to establish a more of a friendly relationship. <laughs> You know, so I think it's possible to interact with these things, but we need to give them space. It's the same with lions and, you know, physical, biological predators that are in the environment. <laughs> they need to be there. You know, they're keystone species. Without these organisms, the ecosystems can collapse from the top down. So, you know, if these other forms of consciousness, like these river beings, have also evolved, then they must also fit into this network somewhere they must have a role and a function within it all i think that's 
Another interesting thing about applying this ecological perspective to the paranormal is to try and think about you know, how these paranormal entities relate to the rest of the biodiversity and psychodiversity that surrounds us. And, you know, we know how interconnected living systems are. Well, you know, what is the relationship between these physical living systems and then these other possible non-physical living systems? Are they interrelated? You know, by destroying the physical world around us, are we also destroying elements of that non-physical world? The ecological perspective really encourages us to think carefully about the things that we do because everything is interconnected, so everything we do has an effect on everything else. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's curious because I wonder what that function might be. Although if, like, in the Missouri River example, if that is not necessarily a thing in the river, but maybe the consciousness of the river, you could see how polluting the river or diverting the river the way we do, you know, we just move things around wherever we want or blowing up a mountain to put a tunnel through it for the highway. These things could disrupt the consciousness of the actual thing that we're messing with. Instead of thinking of the mountain or the river as a home for whatever that is, it might be the thing itself, in which case, yeah, no surprise that these experiences are less in the modern world when we are disrupting so many of these things that we maybe should think of as as persons, I guess. On a slightly related note to this, you know about the Skinwalker Ranch and all that kind of stuff? Oh, yeah. And all the weird that was has been alleged to go on there. I don't know 100% of the veracity of the whole thing, but let's just take it at face value. And I was just thinking, you know, again, if we apply an ecological framework to try and understand what's going on in a place like that, we've got a, like a landscape, essentially, that's fenced off. So it's like a section of landscape where you have an abundance of weird paranormal phenomena taking place. What could be the possible reasons for that? And, you know, like I was saying before, if the land and the spiritual world are intimately connected, then there might be something to do with the land there. Like, has the land on the Skinwalker Ranch been treated correctly? You know, what's the nutrients, <laughs> the nutrient content of the soil? That kind of thing. Is it a healthy place or has it been farmed to death over the last 150 years? If the land has been damaged in that way, then it could be a reason for the terrifying phenomena that are plaguing the place because it's, it's been ruined and it's not a, a thriving biodiverse landscape anymore. Mm. Um, just a thought. Perhaps, you know, an ecological perspective can open up new avenues for understanding these kind of things. Absolutely. If we are looking at Skinwalker Ranch, I think everybody would acknowledge that the stuff that goes on there is deeply connected to the land itself. And maybe there is some kind of chemical or mineral composition in the soil that facilitates this experience. Maybe there's an equation that opens up certain gateways. I mean, people talk about quartz crystal in this kind of context a lot, that it can hold memory pretty easily, that it emits certain frequencies, which might play on human consciousness and open us up in similar ways to psychedelics, but without having to ingest something. And who knows what's deep in that ground? I mean, we, we've only drilled down five miles on this earth, period. Maybe there's something 20 miles down that is facilitating that in Skinwalker Ranch. Maybe it isn't ley lines, but it's something way deep down in that soil. Well, it's something to think about. Or like we were saying before, with 
the river itself. It could be the combination of the rocks and the hills and and all of that combined. And, you know, we just got to think outside the box when it comes to trying to make sense of the paranormal. And this might be one way of doing that. <laughs> yes. Well, we're starting to learn that there are cave systems everywhere. And some of these are insanely vast and some of them are crystal caves. And crystals seem to be one of the most potent, I guess, other forms of intelligence or consciousness that are able to be tapped into, it seems like, from people I've talked to. It seems like if you want to start, some people might have more experience with plants, but crystals, opposed to maybe rocks, seem to be uh, quite chatty if you really want to get into it. Yeah. And maybe there's a crystal yeah. cave deep under the, the ground there, and, and maybe that's something to take into account. Yeah, there could be all sorts of different environmental factors going on, but that haven't been taken into account because we think about paranormal experiences as, you know, I don't know, something else from another dimension or that kind of thing. You know, maybe we're missing the point and it's actually not from another dimension. It's from the below our feet, from the earth or from the trees. Or That's a, another thing I like about the idea. I think Joshua Cutchin's been talking about it a lot recently. The idea of Bigfoot being a wilderness poltergeist or a wilderness geist. Um, <laughs> yes. A really cool idea. You know, he's not a discrete entity, but he is a manifestation of the wilderness, which ties in nicely with what I was saying about fairies and, you know, going out to the edge of the domesticated landscape and having paranormal experiences, that he is a manifestation of a landscape rather than a particular entity. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I agree. I think that makes a lot of sense, too, because even though this stuff might sound weird to be so paranormal adjacent, if you look across the board at all these experiences, the biggest commonality when it comes to messaging is we should take better care of the earth, be a steward of the earth. It doesn't matter if it comes from Bigfoot or some gray alien. Mm. The message tends to be largely the same. And you even point out in the book, is it a coincidence that guys like Charles Fort, they start looking at all this weird stuff and then they end up being really conscious about how we treat the landscape. John Keel as well. Yeah. These people who go off on these paranormal adventures, they come back with those same thoughts, those same conclusions. And it is strange that that is what people are you know, realizing from these experiences. And it makes you think that maybe the earth is producing this stuff itself. Yeah. I mean, with John Keel, he came to the, well, one of his like overarching conclusions was that something very similar to the Gaia idea again, was that the Earth itself is conscious. You know, we talked about this being a haunted planet, that all of these strange mothmen and things like that are different forms of manifestations of interaction with this Earth consciousness. So yeah, it is very peculiar that, you know, you can research it from the paranormal and end up at the same argument, research it from the ecological angle, and then you end up encountering spirits, you know, it's like a feedback loop again. The more we engage with the world, the more we have extraordinary experiences. The more extraordinary experiences have, the more we want to engage with the world. It's interesting. <laughs> it is. And if we're going to go back to astrology and think that Mercury being in retrograde is going to have some kind of effect on our ability here to communicate smoothly or for technology to work correctly, well, the Earth is a lot closer to us and you would think that maybe its positioning or what its its movements through the cosmos would also it's have moods. an effect and it's probably 
Yeah, it's moods. Exactly. That kind of probably affects its moods. Like, yeah. you know, it's a hot one today. I'm frustrated. I'm going to throw out some UFOs for people to deal with. <laughs> yeah. Send out some warning flares. It's possible. I, I think it, in a way, it is. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> That's part of the overall argument of the book is that perhaps that all of this paranormal stuff is in some way connected with the planet that we live on. <laughs> right. And it's just a real pleasure to have you here, man. You, you're really good at pushing through the shock and awe of the paranormal and trying to get into the mechanisms and the meaning in creative, multidisciplinary ways. And it's very important to do. And you're obviously in deep with the thinkers on anthropology and ecology and that side of the coin. What would you like to see from people who are more focused on the paranormal side, like the researchers that I might interview or hosts in positions like me, what do you think is the key to getting further down the road rather than spinning our wheels like we have for so long? Yeah, I think part of it is, you know, being willing to challenge the established models, you know, so in anthropology, for example, there are models like functionalism and things like that, which are kind of very well established and pretty much most anthropologists are functionalists of one form or another. And my approach has always been to say that's fair enough, like functionalism is a thing and, you know, things do perform functions, but there's always something more as well. Like there's always the experience of mediumship, for example. You can explain it in terms of its social function or its psychological function. But then what about the actual experience itself? So, you know, you need to be able to expand the established models to incorporate new new things, whether that's to take experience seriously or then to take the literature from parapsychology seriously. And just to see the connections that exist between different disciplines, different ways of looking at the world and trying to understand the world a little bit more holistically and in terms of complexity and not reducing things down into, you know, not trying to make things simple, because like we were saying before, the world isn't simple. Solving the riddle of Psy isn't going to be, it's not going to be a simple solution. <laughs> it's going to be something that reveals the fundamental complexity of the whole thing. So yeah, that's my advice, is to try and think beyond the established models, because chances are the truth or the reality behind the whole thing is far weirder than we could possibly imagine. <laughs> Hmm. I like it. Good advice. I will take that to heart. And man, I'm glad we could do this again. A lot of fun. Remind the people where to find your website or you and what it is you're going to be working on next. Yeah, well, um, you can find out about me and my research. I've got a website, which is jack-hunter.webstarts.com. It's a bit of a long URL, but it doesn't really matter. <laughs> you can find me on Facebook as well. If you look for Dr. Jack Hunter. And I've got a couple of interesting projects in the pipeline at the moment. In November, coming up, my thesis, I've finally managed to transform it into a book. So that will be being released in November, Manifesting Spirits. And that's all about my, you know, my experience with mediums and trying to make sense of that whole thing. And then in May, I've got another book coming out, an edited collection with an anthropologist called Diana Espirito Santo. And that one is called Mattering the Invisible. And it's a collection of essays that's exploring different ways that matter 
is used to conceptualize invisible forces, spirits, even things like the climate or the Higgs boson and things. So it's really challenging us to think about the role of matter in paranormal experiences. Because you know, we try to talk about paranormal experiences as providing evidence of the immaterial world and stuff, but that doesn't mean that matter isn't fundamentally involved with it. So that's what that book's about. And then something that I'm really excited about at the moment is a new project that I just started to put together about Scooby-Doo and the paranormal. <laughs> and thinking about the influence of Scooby-Doo on different paranormal subcultures. So, you know, like ghost hunters and skeptics, people take what they want from Scooby-Doo and use it in different ways. So I've got a whole bunch of uh, things going on at the moment. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be stopping anytime soon, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> man you're a busy guy and always doing something interesting and trying to write one book kicked my ass and i don't know <laughs> if i'll ever get it done and you're making them like hotcakes so very awesome always interesting stuff it has been a real pleasure glad we could do this again and keep up the great work man thank you very much there we have it, people. Dr. Jack Hunter, the coolest name in anthropology, pulling together some of the most interesting voices and unique ideas in that sweet spot between ecology and the paranormal. And it really was the popularity of recent shows that dipped back into traditional paranormal topics that got me looking around for something similar. People really seem to like Joshua Cutchin and Tim Renner's episode talking about their book Where the Footprints End, for example, but that was back in August. Time really seems to fly around here, but I saw that Jack had this compilation out and thought it was a good way to be able to tap into one of the more minor veins in the THC lifeblood that do have a higher side flavor to them and highlight them together in one episode because separately... They might be a little thin for full two-hour conversations of their own. Also, I think for several of these authors, writing about a paranormal overlap with ecology is more the exception than the rule when it comes to their typical work. And it's probably just part of that natural process we've mentioned a thousand times. If you spend time in nature, if you get yourself outside of the smog and the smart cities enough, you'll feel a bit different when you get out there off the radar, and it's when you're most likely to experience something we consider paranormal. A hike, a camping trip, a drive down an old country road, so often it is that same story, so it makes sense to pick the brains of ecologists about this overlap. And it's sad that people are so polarized and firmly planted in their ideological camps that even getting a whiff of something that vaguely relates to the earth and its health in any way can set some people off, even though I'm well aware that the International Tribunal on Climate Change was tasked with finding a human cause for it and they isolated CO2 for that. They made CO2 emissions sound scary while ignoring all the other data related to our very complex environment because it's a lever they can pull to control the people, throttling people's energy and water usage. Kamala Harris just said the other day that the government could and should limit people's access and consumption of red meat to fight climate change. Not, you know, overlogging, chemical dumping, poisoning the water and the air, big factory smokestacks. No, they want to take away one of our primary sources of nutrition, despite factory farming, of course, but 
red meat, kind of important, I think. And yeah, uh, all this hype was more or less phase one of the very control measures that COVID has justified. And if COVID dies down, they'll go right back to using the climate change argument for why these controls must be implemented. And obviously that's a different show, but it has to be said because even the word ecology is going to trigger some people. Insane, I know, but this is what I'm dealing with sometimes. Though there should be nothing wrong with caring about the earth and wanting it to be clean. Whether or not an uncontrollable grand solar minimum is going to push humanity to the brink of destruction or not, right? But I did enjoy some of these ideas presented. I liked the thing about earth lights. I am compelled by the thought that some of this high strangeness might be manifestations from the earth itself. Weird, but I suppose nothing should be off the table when it comes to this kind of stuff. I've said this before, but I do love the paranormal branch on the THC tree. It's one of the pillars, but it's hard to keep from just saying the same old things. Obviously, Jack expressed that today, too. The field has been spinning its wheels for a long time. I don't know how these paranormal-centric podcasts do it, because on the conspiracy side of the higher side coin, there's always something new going on we can talk about or a different chapter of history we can dissect. But paranormal episodes are just much more difficult to make unique. It's why Josh Cutchin's work is so awesome time after time. All these books he's written are very unique, deep dives into a specific thread. And it's also why I thought Jack's screening the paranormal compilation was worth diving into. That and that paranormal encounter stories always rounded out quite nicely on a day like today. So I like this one. Jack is a calming presence in chaotic times. And with the next three episodes of THC already on the books, we are doing everything we can to avoid the whole political sweeps week bullshit bonanza and just do our own unexpected thing. But if you liked the first hour today and the second hour, we got into things like sensing animal consciousness and intelligence soul birds and spirit possession of animals, a hidden predator and the privacy of our own minds, fractal geometry and ecstatic experiences, and a little something called psychic naturalism. Fun rapid fire stuff that really speaks to what I'm saying about a plethora of ideas put into one episode. Definitely check out the authors and idea makers themselves if some of these names were new to you. And if you appreciate their thoughts, obviously this show is often just a resource connector, I suppose. So consider yourself connected. Sign up for Plus, get the full two-hour episodes. I'm really proud of the lineup lately and for what's coming up next. Might as well get in now. Treat yourself and get the full archive. A lifetime forum membership where you can tell me about your stories and theories for the joint session Plus member episodes. And you can get MP3s of all the THC music that I've had made over the years. And speaking of that, I've been working with Lauren Silva again, a.k.a. Monty, whose voice you've heard in a lot of these closing cover songs. And we have several new ones in the works. For those who don't know, I try to think of Weird Al-style THC-related parodies of popular songs. I write the lyrics, and I turn them over to one of a few different artists to perform. 
which is hard to do. Deliver a cover song exactly how it would be delivered in my head when I wrote it, especially if the words are weird, like Archon. But it's a fun thing I like to do. It keeps us from getting dinged for using copywritten music. We're controversial enough as it is. But like I said, we got some new ones. And even though this one still has to go through a final mix, and I'll put it up for download when that happens next week, I'm just too excited and I'm going to play it today. I like it a lot. It's been a while since we did any new songs. I don't know how many Ed Sheridan crossover fans there are, but I think you'll like the THC version better. And it's a good fit for this episode in particular. So here we go. Again, big thanks to Dr. Jack Hunter and all the great minds in Greening the Paranormal. Big thanks to Lauren for helping me out again. Check out her work as Monty the Artist, M-O-N-T-I. She is the best, and I'm getting out of here. I've done my part. Your move, big feet, elemental beans, and recruiters of Guyan stewardship. Your fucking move. When you see weird lights outside of your door Something sits on your chest when you sleep It might be a pattern you've been through before you might have those screen memories darling wait till we get some proof still we'll make them see and baby i tried the camera Okay. 